Most of the time, when we feel a patient's extremities, we say, hey, they're in cold shock. And in fact, sometimes they're not. Other times we feel their extremities and they're warm with bounding pulses. And in fact, they have myocardial dysfunction when you measure it. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodgers, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. So Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at Pete's Grit? Absolutely. Pete's Crit is an educational PICU podcast. We are trying to find the best critical care teachers around the country and the world, really capture those teaching spiels in timeless podcasts. Zach, who are we talking to today? Today, we are very excited to speak with Dr. Scott Weiss. Dr. Weiss completed his pediatric residency training at Children's Hospital Boston and his pediatric critical care fellowship at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. He is the division chief of pediatric critical care at Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, and an associate professor of pediatrics and pathology at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Weiss's research focuses on the epidemiology of pediatric sepsis and mitochondrial dysfunction in sepsis-associated organ injury. He recently served as the co-vice chair for the International Pediatric Surviving Sepsis Campaign and was the first author on the 2020 Pediatric Sepsis Guidelines. Zach, you've done it again. You've recruited another guideline author onto Pete's Grid. In this part one of the two-part series, we're going to be talking about fluid resuscitation and hemodynamic assessment of the acutely evolving septic patient. Dr. Weiss helps us move beyond the old framework of cold shock versus warm shock and really tailor our fluid resuscitation for each individual patient. Yes, I think it was a timeless discussion of a patient that we will take care of every day in the pediatric ICU. Let's get right to the content. Welcome back to Pete's Script. Alice and I were so excited to have Dr. Scott Weiss with us today to talk about this very important topic. Dr. Weiss, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Zach. It's great to be here. So to get things started, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and feel free to include something you enjoy outside of medicine? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm a pediatric intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and an associate professor of anesthesia critical care and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Paramount School of Medicine. I co-direct the CHOP Pediatric Sepsis Program here and have really built my academic career around improving the early recognition and management of children with sepsis and septic shock with a focus specifically on studying the role of mitochondrial dysfunction in children with prolonged sepsis-associated multi-organ dysfunction syndrome or MODS. Outside of work, some of my favorite things to do are focus on fitness and coach youth sports especially with my son getting involved in things like baseball and basketball. It's, uh, it's really been a, a fun addition to my uh, pediatrics profession to, to get out and have fun with the kids uh, running around the field and whatnot. Oh, that does sound fun. How did you initially become interested in sepsis research specifically? Yeah, uh, thank you, Alice, for that question. So, well, I've taken my inspiration from the care I provide at the bedside. And one of the things that I found to be challenging early in my career in pediatric critical care is the lack of specificity with making specific diagnoses that can be tied to fundamental mechanisms of disease that could then be targeted to precision therapeutics. And so sepsis is a prototypical example of a condition that is a useful clinical construct, but is really a hodgepodge of various different pathophysiologies and mechanisms of disease. 
And so I got interested in trying to understand if there were better ways to hone in on specific subphenotypes of sepsis that could lend towards precision and personalized therapeutics. So that's really what has driven my interest in and in trying to better understand sepsis, the mechanisms that drive sepsis-associated multi-organ failure, and ultimately try to link that to novel therapies for particularly the subgroup of patients that do not get better with initial resuscitative therapies. Yep. That's so interesting and so relevant to our conversation today. So think about a fellow maybe early in their training, listen to our conversation today. Do you have any recommendations or maybe advice for them if they want to become more involved in sepsis-related research, maybe networking opportunities, meetings to go attend, other things? Yeah. So first, I would suggest that people try to follow their passions, right? So they're going to be most successful in pursuing either clinical or scientific endeavors that really keep them up at night and that they really find a personal interest in. So if better understanding sepsis ignites that fire in your belly, then certainly there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And so we certainly welcome young clinician scientists to help us learn more about how to care better for these children. A good place to start would be the 2020 Pediatric Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. At the end of that quite long document, there's a section on research priorities and knowledge gaps that I think nicely outlines several dozen of the key problems that we don't yet have a good handle on and that are ripe for novel studies. And so that might be a good place to get some ideas about specific areas of sepsis to study. In terms of how to meet others who are like-minded in investigating sepsis, certainly you know, starting with local mentors is a, always a good place to start. But outside of that, meetings such as the Pediatric Acute Lung and Sepsis Investigators Network or Polizzi Research Meeting is always welcome to pediatric critical care fellows who have an interest in sepsis. And it's a great place to network and meet others who are interested in, in sepsis-related work. Other broader meetings would be the Society of Critical Care Medicine Annual Congress, which is actually coming up in January, as well as the annual Shock Society meeting, which is usually held in June. The Shock Society in particular is a really great place to meet investigators from the adult critical care community who are very focused on shock and sepsis. Fantastic. Especially finding a mentor that can really help guide you through this process, because I feel like these are resource-intensive studies. All right. So let's go ahead and get started with a case. We have an 11-year-old girl with a history of obstructive uropathy and recurrent urinary tract infections. She's here in the emergency department with fever, vomiting, altered mental status, decreased urine output. She is tachycardic with a heart rate of 130, normotensive with a blood pressure of 110 over 70, but the cap refill time is prolonged at five seconds. Her respiratory rate is in the 20s. She's satting well on room air, and we are concerned from sepsis from a urinary source. She comes in and we've got a bundle in the ER ready to go for her sepsis detection and empiric antibiotic therapy. Is there high quality evidence for supporting the use of IV fluid boluses in this patient as part of her initial resuscitation? So it's a great question. And unfortunately, it's a little bit of a complicated answer with a lot of unknowns. But the use of IV fluids to restore the circulation has been a very common practice in medicine for the last 200 years. It really started in the cholera epidemic in Europe in the mid-1800s. And you would think after 200 years or so that we'd have a better sense of how to use fluid bolus therapy and the impact it has on patient outcomes. But unfortunately, it's somewhat complex. 
The data supporting the use of fluid bolus therapy in children with septic shock really comes out of observational studies from the late 1980s, early 1990s, which noted an association between improved outcomes and reversal of shock and at least a reasonable amount of fluid resuscitation therapy, usually defined as somewhere around 40 to 80 mLs per kilo in the first hour or two of resuscitation. And based on some of those observational studies, the guidelines really honed in on fluid bolus therapy as the cornerstone of early resuscitative management for children who present with septic shock. However, the highest quality evidence we have comes from a randomized clinical trial that was conducted in sub-Saharan Africa by Catherine Maitland called the FEAST trial. And this study randomized children with severe febrile illness to either fluid bolus therapy with 0.9% saline or albumin versus no fluid bolus therapy and only using maintenance intravenous fluids alone. Now, that study excluded patients who had severe hypotension, which is an important omission. But the results of that study were surprising in that it identified a mortality benefit in the group that did not receive fluid bolus therapy. And so this study, which is the highest quality evidence for pediatric septic shock fluid resuscitation that we have, contradicted the earlier observational data that showed an association between fluid bolus therapy and improved outcomes and led to a, quite a bit of controversy. Now, the target population of the FEAST trial was obviously different than the patient population that is typically cared for in countries like the United States or Europe or other resource-rich areas. And so there's a lot to be dissected out from these data. But ultimately, what I think the balance of data tells us is that there is likely a role for fluid bolus therapy in the early resuscitation of children who present with septic shock, but that it's not universal and there are limitations and caveats and potential harms that one should be aware of and monitor for in the course of their early resuscitation. That was a great answer. I think it certainly encompassed you know, how the actual patient in front of us and maybe the resources that are available for that patient can affect our initial management strategies. I think it's fascinating as a trainee that something as core as fluid resuscitation only has such limited evidence, and this is a great reason for us to discuss it today. So for that trainee who's reading the 2020 Surviving Sepsis Guidelines, how should we reconcile this weak recommendation to provide fluid boluses to septic patients that we generally do to almost every septic patient who comes in with the strong recommendation against providing fluid boluses to patients in resource-limited settings? Yeah, it's a great question. So at first, I think it's important to understand what is meant by a strong recommendation versus a weak recommendation. So the Surviving Sepsis Campaign follows the grade methodology. And so to qualify for a strong recommendation, there must be really high quality evidence or really irrefutable biology that dictates that the overwhelming majority of patients would want to receive that therapy and that it would be appropriate for the overwhelming majority. A weak recommendation doesn't necessarily mean that it's not appropriate, but it means that the quality of evidence is just not quite as robust and that there probably is more room for variability in terms of whether it's appropriate to provide that therapy for 
patients or not, and that some patients may not want or require that therapy. So that's the difference between a strong and a weak recommendation. So with that background, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign made a strong recommendation to not give fluid bolus therapy for children who present with septic shock without hypotension if they present in resource-limited areas in which intensive care services could not be accessed. And so this really means in parts of the world where you cannot get a child to the ICU or you cannot bring critical care to the child, such as ventilator management and advanced hemodynamic monitoring, for example. That is not the same as a community hospital in the United States, which may not have a pediatric ICU, but you could certainly transfer the patient to a pediatric ICU. So based on the FEAST data, there was a strong recommendation with that high-quality evidence that fluid bolus therapy could be harmful in the absence of hypotension. In resource-rich areas, such as throughout the United States, there is a weak recommendation based on the observational data that there's an association between fluid bolus therapy and improved outcomes. But there's some caveats to that weak recommendation. And again, it's weak just because of the quality of the studies that inform that recommendation. Not that they were poorly done, but rather they're not randomized controlled trials, they're observational trials, or observational studies rather. So the caveats to that is that fluid bolus therapy should not be given indiscriminately. It should be given with a specific purpose. It should be targeted to hemodynamic variables, and there should be continued reassessment for clinical improvement and for the development of fluid overload which could then shift the balance of risk-benefit of giving ongoing fluid resuscitative therapy. So it's an important, I think, advance in the 2020 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines over prior pediatric guidelines as well as adult guidelines that fluid bolus therapy is done in a careful, titrated, hemodynamically targeted manner rather than as an indiscriminate recommendation to give a fluid bolus to all patients irrespective of what's going on with them or where they present. Yes, as the field shifts towards being more of a steward of fluids, keeping an eye on that and being thoughtful. The other thing I want to mention about the fee study is that reading it is, I would suggest that our listeners do actually sit down and read it. It was a little uncomfortable for me because you're looking at these resource-limiting settings with these like top physicians, I think, in the UK going there and conducting the study. Out of respect for the 293, I think, which was about 8.6% of their enrollees, those children that did die, I do want to mention that they did significantly improve the mortality at study sites. It also made me think about the fact that on Pedscript, we talk about resource-heavy settings, and this is a good reminder that those are often not the children that are dying. Thank you for that. A really quick follow-up question. You kind of already suggested access to intensive care might shift how you might provide fluid boluses and manage these patients. It seems like anywhere in the United States, there would generally be access to intensive care. That doesn't necessarily mean you have a PICU upstairs, but it seems that if you can provide the modalities that are used in ICU, like a ventilator or vasoactives, that, that seems like what you mean by access to intensive care. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right, Zach. So it is not the ability to admit the child to a formal pediatric intensive care unit that defines access to intensive care services. It's the ability to provide advanced support both from a respiratory and hemodynamic standpoint. So that would include the ability to place a child on a ventilator or even CPAP or VIPAP and to provide vasoactive therapy with medications that I'm sure we'll talk about. That's what really defines access to intensive care support services. So 
every hospital in the United States should have at least basic access to those features, often as they're preparing for transport of that child. So even in rural hospitals Mm -hmm. in the United States, fluid bolus therapy would be appropriate, again, in a titrated, hemodynamically directed manner. This is such a great discussion on one of those cornerstones of initial resuscitation, fluid boluses for patients who are septic. I feel like as critical care physicians, we're all physiology junkies. And because it's such an interesting topic for me, I got one more question for you about fluid boluses, and it kind of gets back to the physiology. So I assume the goal, what we're trying to do is increase oxygen delivery. It's what we do in the ICU every single day. But I know that providing a fluid bolus likely just improves cardiac output. We talked about as a first year, you increase preload, increases stroke volume, you have increased cardiac output. But how does providing crystalloid salt water actually improve oxygen delivery for these patients? I understand it can be a bit of a hot topic, but I'd love to just hear how you feel like it reconciles with the septic patient's physiology. Yeah, it's a great question. So the two components that contribute to oxygen delivery And in fact, the equation for oxygen delivery or DO2 is cardiac output times arterial oxygen content, right? So crystalloid fluids do not in and of themselves improve arterial oxygen content. And in fact, in high volume, they might actually decrease it somewhat through hemodilution, but they can improve cardiac output, right? And fluids do so through the Frank Starling mechanism of whereby giving fluid causes increased end diastolic volume which leads to increased stretch and through better actin-myosin interconnectedness, then leads to a more pronounced contractility and increased stroke volume. And for the majority of patients who have normal myocardial function and probably some degree of hypovolemia, which is almost universal in sepsis for a variety of mechanisms, there's going to be a preload benefit to enhancing intravascular volume on the subsequent stroke volume and therefore cardiac output and therefore increasing oxygen delivery. Now, that will enhance macrocirculatory parameters, right? So that will increase things like blood pressure and perhaps reduce heart rate. And those are the parameters we tend to follow clinically because they're available to us at the bedside. The real goal, however, is to improve microcirculatory flow. Now, if you improve macrocirculatory flow through an increase in cardiac output, you're going to increase microcirculatory flow as a result and therefore increase tissue perfusion and therefore enhance oxygen delivery to the tissues, which is the goal. There may also be a microcirculatory benefit to hemodilution by giving crystalloid fluid therapy and decreasing the viscosity of the blood, particularly in patients who are severely dehydrated, who might be hemoconcentrated, and that will also enhance microcirculatory blood flow. The problem, of course, is, well, twofold. One is we can't monitor microcirculatory flow very easily. There are research-based techniques, but not anything that's readily available and at the bedside currently. And so we're somewhat guessing that our ability to improve stroke volume, cardiac output, and oxygen delivery on a macrocirculatory level leads to enhanced microcirculatory blood flow and oxygen delivery. But we don't really know that, you know, in our patient in front of us. The other challenge is that if you have ongoing capillary leak, which is really post-capillary venal leak, so if you have leakage of that fluid that you're giving into the interstitium, or an increase in venous pressures, then you're actually going to impair microcirculatory blood flow. So at some point, you're going to shift from fluid bolus therapy being potentially beneficial to being harmful. And it's finding that fine balance that I think is the real challenge. 
Certainly that varies on a patient-to-patient basis. And without better ways to monitor the microcirculation, we're really just sort of guesstimating based on macrocirculatory parameters like blood pressure and heart rate, urine output, mental status. We can get it a little bit with things like central venous oxygen saturation, lactate, and some people advocate for actually measuring a gap between the arterial and venous CO2 blood concentrations or partial pressure measurements as an indicator of how well blood is transiting through the microcirculation. But again, these are all indirect parameters. So it's a long answer to say that the benefit of fluid bolus therapy in theory is that it enhances cardiac output, which should improve oxygen delivery through enhanced microcirculatory blood flow. But at some point, that benefit becomes lost and actually we shift to harm. The last point on this is that a patient being responsive to a fluid bolus, as indicated by an increase in their blood pressure or a decrease in heart rate, does not necessarily equate to the fact that that patient needs a fluid bolus. For example, the three of us sitting here would probably have an improvement in our blood pressure and a decrease in our heart rate <laughs> if we were given a fluid bolus, yeah. but that doesn't mean we necessarily need one at the moment. And so that leads to a lot of angst at the bedside about what are the best parameters to assess whether or not, A, my patient's going to be fluid responsive, and if they are fluid responsive, do they even need that fluid bolus? And that's an area where we need additional data and research to help guide patient-centered and personalized care. Understanding that it's a deeply imperfect assessment tool without very much interprovider reliability, as someone who's thinking about the microcirculation and thinking about the way that you can shift from improving to damaging things, do you feel like you focus more on your bedside assessment of cap refill? It's a good question. You know, capillary refill is an attractive measure of perfusion because it's easy to do. Now, it also is often incorrectly performed. There are now actually devices that are being tested to enable a more consistent measurement of what we're trying to get at with capillary refill. And those look at a consistent and reproducible amount of pressure that's applied to a certain area of the skin, and then actually use optics to actually measure refill rather than just your eye. But that said, it's an easy thing to do at the bedside, and I do it all the time on our patients. And I would encourage our trainees to do it frequently as well to get a sense of peripheral perfusion. But there are some studies that suggest that if you do capillary refill, that it's a good way to indicate whether or not your patient's responding to resuscitation. So in particular, the Andromeda trial, which was published out of South America, this was adult patients, but randomized patients with septic shock to resuscitation guided by a standardized way to measure capillary refill versus serial lactate measurements with the goal of decreasing lactate by 20% every two hours. And they actually found a mortality benefit for patients who were resuscitated according to capillary refill time compared to the lactate-guided time. And mm-hmm. in particular, the patients in the group guided by capillary refill received less fluid therapy, less blood transfusions, and less vasopressors suggesting that sometimes we could be perhaps over-aggressive in our attempts to help people that may, again, move us from initial benefit to unintended harm. And so to get back to your original question, yes, I do think capillary refill time is a useful thing to do. And there is some high quality evidence to suggest that it can be useful to help us guide ongoing resuscitation. 
Oh, fantastic. Well, speaking of cereal lactates, let's get back to our case. Our 11-year-old girl with urosepsis, she got 40 per kilo of crystalloid. She continues to be tachycardic with a prolonged cap refill time. Also has developed hypotension with blood pressures of 90s over 40s. A venous, really Zach, a venous, lactate was drawn. It was initially high at 8 millimoles per liter and now has only decreased to 6. We've talked a little bit about this, but... How reliable is the physical exam when we think about determining if a patient with sepsis is in warm shock or cold shock? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because it's one of the newer recommendations from the 2020 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines for Children that I think is often misinterpreted, which is probably means that we didn't do a very good job explaining what was intended by that recommendation. But the background behind warm versus cold shock is well-founded in physiologic differences. So conceptually, warm versus cold shock is used to refer to patients who have different physiologic types. So with warm shock, usually indicating a child who has more of a distributive type shock picture with hyperdynamic mitocardial function and vasodilation or vasoplegia, the sort of typical classical presentation of distributive septic shock. Whereas cold shock is a phenotype that's defined by myocardial dysfunction and peripheral vasoconstriction, where children actually feel cold peripherally with diminished perfusion, hard to feel pulses, delayed cap refill, and often a narrow pulse pressure and preserved or maybe even high diastolic blood pressure relative to their systolic blood pressure. It is very true that those two physiologic phenotypes do in fact occur and are measurable if you have the appropriate hemodynamic tools to assess those things. The challenge becomes how accurately clinical exam findings alone can differentiate those two physiologic states. So the original study out of Pittsburgh from the late 1990s that really tells us that cold shock is prevalent in pediatric sepsis and probably more common than warm shock and associated with a higher mortality than warm shock comes from data that was obtained using pulmonary artery catheters. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, in that study, what they found was that after placement of the pulmonary artery catheter, the assessment of the physiology changed in over 80% of patients compared to the initial clinical impression using bedside exam findings alone, such as extremity temperature, pulse strength, capillary refill, diastolic blood pressure, and pulse pressure. So what we can learn from that is that while those physiological states are measurable and do exist and can be distinguished, it's hard to do so using clinical signs alone. Because most of the time when we feel a patient's extremities, we say, hey, they're in cold shock. And in fact, sometimes they're not. Other times mm -hmm. we feel their extremities and they're warm with bounding pulses. And in fact, they have myocardial dysfunction when you measure it or look for it directly. And so we need to be cautious about overestimating the patient's physiology based on clinical exam findings alone. And that's really what the heart of the 2020 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline was aiming to do, not to prevent people from trying to understand the physiological state and treating that physiological state with either an inotrope if they have cold shock or a vasopressor if they have warm shock, for example, but preventing people from being overly confident based on using clinical exam findings alone. And so instead, the recommendation is to actually augment your clinical exam 
with other ways to directly measure physiology, such as cardiac ultrasound or point-of-care cardiac ultrasound or POCUS, where you can actually directly look at myocardial function and you can directly look at intravascular volume status. There are also technologies that, through various different mechanisms, can directly measure stroke volume and cardiac output and estimate systemic vascular resistance. Now, those are not technologies that are commonly used in children for a variety of reasons, but the technology is improving and we will get there. So for now, I think understanding that those differences in physiology are present is important, but don't be too tied to what you're finding on your physical exam alone. Otherwise, you might think that you have a child who has pure vasoplegia and you may be escalating vasopressor support when in fact they do have some underlying septus-induced myocardial dysfunction Mm. that you might miss. So that's really the caution that was attempting to be conveyed through that recommendation by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Thanks. That's really helpful. You know, it's so intuitive that when you feel a patient's extremities or their pulses, it it seems so intuitive that you could tell what their physiology is. And the fact that maybe up to 80% of the time we're wrong, gosh, that's a great learning point from today. You mentioned using additional tools to understand a patient's physiology. You said in the past, PA catheters was the go-to. Maybe now it's more point-of-care ultrasound. If a patient like this is in your ICU, what tools are you going to use to identify and understand their physiology? Yeah, so I do think an exam is important, and particularly as a patient evolves over time. So if you see a change in their exam, there probably is a change in physiology, and so it can be helpful to alert you to the fact that the patient's either evolving you know, for good or potentially for bad and can help you think about the need for additional investigation. So a physical exam is always going to be your bedrock. Additional tools that we use are central venous oxygen saturation measurements. So this is a basically a, a blood venous oxygen saturation measurement that could be obtained from any sort of central line, ideally a line that has its tip at the SVC-RA junction. And in the sicker patients, particularly those who are requiring ICU level management, it can be especially helpful to ascertain whether or not SVO2 is either low, suggesting that oxygen delivery is insufficient, or sometimes even high, suggesting that oxygen extraction, oxygen utilization is impaired. Knowing that about your patient can be helpful in thinking about the next steps. Blood lactate is also an important tool to follow. Now, lactate's a little bit complicated. So there was a a remark made earlier about whether or not venous lactate could be useful. So venous lactate is very useful if it comes from a relatively free-flowing source. And so if it comes from a central line or even a a large bore peripheral IV, it can still be useful. It's going to overestimate the arterial lactate a bit, but if it comes from a free-flowing source, it's going to be a reasonable measure. So if it's all you have, it's better than not knowing. But ideally, arterial lactate from an arterial catheter would be the gold standard. So we would trend lactate as well. Now, lactate is often elevated when children present, and that's often due to impaired oxygen delivery. Over time, however, as the patients continue their care in the ICU, elevations in lactate are often more complex and are a result not only of impaired oxygen delivery, but also impaired oxygen utilization and potentially some medication effects as well as liver dysfunction. And so it could be a complicated thing to follow. And so there are some patients for whom lactate does not necessarily continue to decline. And one needs to interpret an elevation in lactate in a patient who initially presents versus 12 or 24 hours post-resuscitation slightly differently. We also do point-of-care cardiac ultrasound 
to look for intravascular volume status by looking at the IVC, looking at aortic blood flow velocity, as well as looking for things like beelines and infusions on lung ultrasound, and then direct measures of LV myocardial function. And even to a non-cardiologist, one can get pretty accurate assessment of those hemodynamic parameters, which can be helpful in thinking about ongoing management. There are other monitors that have had variable levels of uptake, such as near-infrared spectroscopy or NEARS, that can provide some local estimations of tissue perfusion that can be useful, particularly in smaller infants and children, but are still kind of finding the right balance in terms of how they can be best utilized. An interesting parameter that I highlighted earlier is the arterial venous CO2 gap. And so if you have an arterial line and you measure the PaCO2 and you can measure the PVCO2 from a venous sample simultaneously, a discrepancy that's higher than five or six suggests that there's impaired microcirculatory blood flow. And so that can sometimes be helpful to think about how to continue to titrate therapies. Lastly, are other non-invasive cardiac output monitors. So there's only one of which I'm aware of that's FDA approved for use in children, and that's the USCOM monitor. That's a Doppler ultrasound that looks at blood flow across the aortic valve to try to estimate stroke volume, cardiac output, and systemic vascular resistance. Having access to those advanced monitors can be helpful. And I think as the technology continues to improve, will become standard, but those are still bordering on the research domain at this point. Dr. Weiss, can I ask about another marker of perfusion that I would say is used commonly at the bedside, but significantly less cutting edge? As you are literally a mitochondrial researcher, you're thinking about microcirculation. In the Lucking textbook, I thought that it was a beautiful description of how your base deficit starts to evolve when perfusion is impaired. If you think about it, the oxygen isn't there to accept the hydrogen. It diffuses out into the blood and you start to really eat away at your base. You'll develop a bit of a metabolic acidosis as a result of your poor perfusion. Is that something you're looking at or are you just looking at the lactate and sort of not worrying about the minus five, minus eight? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think falling base deficit is useful, but it's a number that derives from multiple complex sets of different interacting physiological mechanisms, right? So personally, I think following lactate is more helpful because if your base deficit is being primarily driven by hyperchloremia, for example, as a result of your choice of fluid resuscitation, that may cause you to be overly aggressive. And there are some data to suggest that solely following a base deficit can actually have this feed-forward loop where you end up giving more fluid resuscitation, often with 0.9% saline, which is going to drive hyperchloremia, which reduces your base deficit further. And then you give more fluid and you get this sort of cycle um, that's hard to break sometimes. So I think it's helpful. It's an easy thing to get and you can get it quickly on a point of care, iStat test at the bedside. So it's an attractive thing to follow, but you should really think about it in the context of everything else that's going on. If your lactate's going down, your base deficit is also decreasing. You might want to think about a non-NI gap metabolic acidosis, which I would not interpret the same way as a gap acidosis. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. 
If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.